Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Cormac Larkin. I'm a PhD student at the University of Heidelberg and Max Planck Institute for Nuclear Physics, where I study anything and everything to do with massive stars. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a final year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. And I'm Kirsten Boley. I'm a PhD candidate at The Ohio State University, where I study the impacts of elemental abundances on planet formation and evolution. You're listening to episode 81, Hubble's Hydra, where we will learn all about the issues observational astronomy faces from mega constellations. The Hydra is a Greek mythological monster with many heads. According to legend, when one head was severed, another two would grow in its place. Remind you of anything? <laughs> Starlink alone has 5,000 satellites in orbit already, and it's estimated that there could be 75,000 mega-constellation satellites in orbit by the end of the decade. Wow, that's a lot. For the uninitiated, let's examine these in more detail. So, first of all, let's ask ourselves, what are mega-constellations, and why are they different to just regular satellites? So the idea of mega constellations are basically just a group of a bunch of different satellites working together, and typically the goal is to provide internet. And so these can be comprised of like hundreds or even thousands of different satellites. And the first mega constellations were launched back in 2019. And as of 2023, more than half of the active satellites that we have around Earth are part of a mega constellation. The difference between mega constellations and previous satellites is the amount as well as the location. So for previous satellites, a lot of them, the ones that we think of to use GPS and things like that, and you know the first satellites that had internet, they're on orbits that are pretty far away from Earth, which means that the amount of time that it takes for information to travel back and forth to Earth is a bit longer, which means that your internet's a bit slower. But for these things, previously we didn't need to have, you know, super high speeds for things like GPS and whatnot. But with the mega constellations, they're on much lower orbits, which means that we have faster internet. Basically, the information back and forth is significantly faster. So those are the main differences. I'd like to emphasize something that you said, that from 2019 to 2023, 50% of the satellites in orbit have been launched. So from 1957, the first satellite, to 2019 was 50%, and then 2019 to 2023 is 50%. That's a hockey stick graph. And as Cormac said, it's going to double and double and double quickly. So we're in a, an inflection point in the growth of satellites. But there is a little bit of precedent to this, not much, but in the 90s, there was a company called Iridium, which launched the first constellation it wasn't quite a mega constellation but it was 98 satellites and this was for satellite phones and funny enough the way that the iridium satellites were designed their solar panels reflected sunlight at a very specific time of day very directly so they flared really quickly so instead of like creating a long streak they had a very sudden flare and so they were called iridium flares and actually you can still figure out when these will be 
and then Iridium went bankrupt, and someone actually restarted it in 2017 under the same name. But in high school, my physics teacher tricked the whole class into looking for an Iridium flare, claiming that it was his friend in a plane flying overhead. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's so mean. <laughs> yeah, he got us. <laughs> he got me. <laughs> All right, so um, Iridium is kind of doing this, but there's surely other players in this game. So who else is creating these mega constellations? Yeah, so we've probably all heard of Starlink, which is one of the main contributors of these mega constellations. And like I mentioned before, mega constellations were launched in 2019. As of 2023, Starlink has around 3,600 active satellites. So this is a little bit different than the satellites that they already have launched up in space right now but the ones that are working is around 3600 and they're expected to have and actually the u.s government has approved another 7500 satellites to be launched and basically spacex is ultimately going to have around 30,000 satellites orbiting between 340 and 600 kilometers so that's like around 211 to 380 miles above earth so you know not that far and then the other big contributor is OneWeb, which is in india and they're expecting to have around 6,000. eventually they have 36 satellites up right now there's also amazon kuiper which is hoping to have around 8,000, and astra which is hoping to have around 14,000. So basically, by 2030, we should have around 85,000 satellites orbiting Earth. Launched by tech companies. Mm -hmm, launched by tech companies. So increasing rapidly. But yeah, those are the main contributors. Of course, there's Boeing and things like that, but you know, significantly less in the thousands as opposed to the tens of thousands. Thanks for that, Kirsten. And I guess it would be unfair to call it a multi-headed monster without talking about some of the, the benefits of mega constellations. So if somebody wants to come in on that. Yeah, there are legitimate benefits to this enterprise. So the number one stated benefit is that it would bring high-speed internet to just about everywhere in the world at a low cost. A fun little example, I have a collaborator at MIT who is an eclipse chaser, among other things. And he led an eclipse expedition to the Australian outback, really, really remote area. It took multiple days to get there. You know, they had to camp. Like, it was serious stuff. And they got way out there. They set up their Starlink receiver, and boom, they had gig internet within minutes. I mean, that's never happened before. Like, he's had to use satellite phones that have very uh, bad latency. He's had to, you know, make notes locally and, and hope to upload things later. So that's pretty cool to be able to do that. And you can imagine the value to lower income countries where laying broadband just is not economical. However, that's not the only case. There is a somewhat more cynical view that the mega constellations will be primarily used for high frequency trading. And you can imagine this makes sense because speed of light is incredibly fast, the fastest thing there is. So pinging the satellite and then back down, you can in theory, reduce the latency down to very, very small. Now, you could also do pretty well with fiber optics, right? If you had a fiber that light is running through, 
between New York and Chicago, it would probably be quicker than bouncing it to a satellite. But we definitely are nowhere near laying fiber optics across that much of a distance. We have lots of fiber locally in and around cities, but not across distances like that. So there's a claim that they're using the offer internet everywhere as the nice top line, but this is the true moneymaker. It depends who you ask. Now, another sort of a benefit, or at least not a drawback, is that when satellites are in low Earth orbit, they tend to have a limited lifetime. And that's a good thing because too many satellites can start to crash and cascade and then you have a lot of debris. The challenge is if they go higher than that, the lifetime gets longer. But those are some of the benefits. Sure. And I guess we wouldn't be astronomers if we didn't talk about some of the downsides of this. Yeah. So not to be a Debbie Downer, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. So for mega constellations, the one that we think about as astronomers is basically having a whole bunch of different things in our images when we're looking at space and we're trying to study space. So another thing that this can lead to with not just having the satellites within the images that we're looking at, but also it can lead to light pollution in space as well. So now not only do we have to deal with light pollution on Earth, now mm. we've got to deal with light pollution above Earth as well, you know, which can cause some problems. And then also just kind of the overcrowding and then potential debris that's going to end up in and around Earth's orbit. So those are the major downsides. And I mean, it's not just light pollution. The satellites falling back down and burning up leave huge amounts of metals in the atmosphere that don't really belong there. And mm -hmm. we don't really understand the potential impact that might have on things like climate change and other atmospheric processes. Great point. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the amount of CO emissions too that you're going to have from launching almost 100,000 satellites into space as well, that has to have an impact on Earth just yep. with the amount of fuel that you need. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, on that incredibly optimistic <laughs> note, uh, I think it's uh, time for an astrobite. So let's hear now from Will, who's going to tell us about an astrobite detailing the impact of mega constellations on surveys of stars. Yes. So this astrobite is called The Trail with No End, Satellite Streaks in Stellar Spectra, and it's written by Lindsay DeMarchi. And the paper is titled Star Unlink, Identifying and Mitigating Signals from Communication Satellites in Stellar Spectral Surveys. This was written by Spencer Bialik and others, and it has been submitted to the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. The streaks that are caused by megaconstellations in telescope images are a serious problem, and these authors are addressing a specific aspect of those problems and offering one potential solution. Now, the satellites from megaconstellations reflect sunlight, so they actually reflect the spectrum of the sun. Not exactly, but pretty close to it. So if you're taking a spectrum of something else, and you get a satellite streak in your field of view, your spectrum and the sun's spectrum get contaminated. So you're essentially dealing with two spectra. The one from the thing you care about and always seeing the sun. Now, we like seeing the sun, but not everywhere all the time. So what these authors did was they took 3,100 stellar spectra from the Gaia ESO survey. So that's the part of Gaia that does spectroscopy. And the main Gaia, photometry, 
does over a billion stars. It's massive, but the spectra they've taken is far fewer. And so what the authors did is they took those 3,100 and they contaminated them with some amount of the sun's spectrum. So some random amount, a little bit, a lot, somewhere in between. And they generated 10,000 simulated, contaminated stellar spectra. And then they wanted to determine three things from the contaminated sample. Is a spectrum contaminated? So can you ID if it's bad or good? Two, what are the properties of the star you actually care about? And three, is the stellar spectrum extractable or are you stuck with the contaminated thing? And their approach to these questions was to build a machine learning algorithm. And they used three different types of algorithms for each of these three different problems. So it seems like a lot of the things that are combating this is looking at machine learning algorithms mm -hmm. from what I've seen. But do you know if there's a reason why potentially some sort of signal match filter is just insufficient and in trying to kind of figure out the percentage of the sun spectrum? Or do they talk about that at all? Is machine learning kind of overkill? Yeah, it seems like taking a hammer yeah. <laughs> to whack, you know, something like very, very tiny. Yeah, you make a good point. Okay. Kirsten, I found in the paper the answer to your question. I don't know if you'll be satisfied with it, but I'm going to read from the paper. While other tools could be used to identify solar contamination, for example, a traditional matched filter with solar spectrum template, we decided to use machine learning because of its computational efficiency. A data set of millions of spectra could be analyzed in a couple of minutes and history of successful implementations in astronomy. So to me, what that means is we wanted to do a machine learning project. So we're going to do a machine learning project. <laughs> and you know what? Good yeah. for you. Rock on. <laughs> well, that's great. They, they like nailed it. <laughs> exactly my question. Yep, it was a good question. It sounds like a referee had the same comment you had, Kirsten. Yeah. Oh, yes. That does sound like a referee response paragraph. So the different machine learning algorithms they used. To answer the first question, is it contaminated? They used a classifier neural network. I think it already existed called Starnet. And a zero score means it's clean, uncontaminated. A one means it's fully contaminated, gobbledygook. So that's your classifier. Two... To find the properties of the underlying star, they used a regression neural network. Those are designed to explore how related the independent and dependent variables are. What kind of properties of the star were they looking for? I'm pretty sure that the properties they wanted to resolve out were the effective temperature, the log G, the log of the gravity, metallicity, and the radial velocity. That was the second machine learning effort to answer their second question. Then the third question is the spectrum extractable. They used a machine learning tool called WaveUnet, which is actually designed to isolate audio, such as like a guitar from a song. And so that's a pretty cool application of something that I didn't expect. And then they ensemble their results to get a stronger answer. What they found from the classifier and this is a good sort of top line number, is that 98% of the clean spectra were properly identified as clean. 85% of the contaminated were properly identified as contaminated. So 
a little easier way of thinking about it is 2% of the contaminated were labeled clean and 15% of the clean were labeled contaminated. So that's not so bad because 2% of contaminated labeled clean is good. You don't want to think you have good when you actually have bad. And the 15% clean labeled contaminated is annoying. You might lose some of the good ones, but at least, you know, you didn't accidentally have a bad one. The 15% that's not contaminated, that's labeled contaminated, Mm -hmm. would that really cause any issues at all? Or would whatever processing they're doing to try to get out the contamination, could that mess up your spectrum? I don't know. That's a, a reasonable question and similar to something I was wondering, which is maybe those ones actually have lots of interesting features that look like noise. And so they're, yeah, they're mm-hmm. getting flagged and maybe then thrown out when they shouldn't be. So yeah, 15% may seem small on the grand scheme of things, but it could be the ones with the best science. So I agree with you. We, we need to dig under the hood. And unfortunately, there's not a ton of further detail on this. Now, in terms of actually extracting them, that was found to be a lot harder. They had very good success extracting the spectrum if the solar contamination was less than 40%. So they ran a bunch of different types of contamination. The problem is, if there's contamination of less than 5%, a lot of those sneak by and they're labeled as clean. And so you just take them as is. Those are often pretty common in real life. They didn't make a lot of those they made as many of 5% as they did of any percent, but they are very common in reality that you might just have a tiny contamination. You might not even realize it's slightly contaminated and then you'll extract the wrong features or you won't run it through the processing that it needs to be to remove it. They did find one bright spot, which is that when you have high radial velocity stars, it's much easier to extract the spectrum because of the Doppler shift, red or blue. One of the things that they explored a little bit was that the assumption that the contamination is solar might not be so good. What if it's actually not the spectrum of the sun they reflect, but they have their own reflectance spectrum? So that could be tricky. Oh, yeah. Actually, that's really interesting because I actually know someone that does research on basically the reflected properties of satellites. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. That research could be critical to this. But I think it's not just the astronomers that are going to need to do this work. In order to really solve this, I think it's going to require some cooperation from the companies to test what their reflectance spectra are. I mean, if they could provide that kind of information, it would really help because then you might be able to just subtract it easily, mm-hmm. especially if they gave the information about based on where the orbital configuration was, time of year, all that sort of stuff, what you'd expect to see. Another challenge that they're going to have is saturation because you're going to suddenly, in taking your spectrum, have a bunch more light dumped into it. You need to have enough dynamic range to capture that. Otherwise, you'll saturate, and when you saturate, everything is lost. So you won't be able to use your full dynamic range as you normally would because you have to leave some of it for possible contamination. And... So it seems like this is not going away. There are going to be more satellites launched. This is going to be a problem. Astronomers need to work on solving this. And also, if you know if these companies are going to keep launching these, the least they can do is help us learn how to mitigate their effects on spectra. Yeah, that's super interesting. I think that working with the companies 
I'm not sure if I've actually heard anyone mention that, but I think that that's a good point because, you know, knowing what their satellites are made out of can definitely help our machine learning algorithms or whatever we're using to try and filter their satellites mm -hmm. out. Exactly. Thank you, Will, for that wonderfully delivered astrobite. And now it is time for the first Cormtacular space sound. Okay, we'll work on it. We'll work on it. That's a good start. <laughs> <laughs> so for my inaugural sound, and I must say it, it's lovely to be in this position now of knowledge as opposed to ignorance and trying to feign professional competence. I'm going to play you a little something that I managed to come up with. If my laptop will cooperate. So, mm. what do we think? Interesting. Well, it definitely goes up in octave as it goes. Yeah, I was thinking it was going up and down kind of gradually, and then suddenly had a huge spike at the end. So I was like, oh, it's, it's, it's satellite launches, but then it went down. <laughs> so I'm less convinced. Number of exoplanets discovered doesn't seem right. But my Wi-Fi password is literally planets are boring to annoy the other PhDs in Heidelberg, so yeah, not likely. <laughs> oh, I think I got to give up. Yeah, I think I, I'll say I know it's wrong, but I'm just going to say like a spectrum. Just a guess. Not a million miles away. So uh, when I was looking for my sonification, I thought, well, how hard could it be to make one? So I just Googled sonification tools and found one that apparently you guys have already used two-tone that's right big fan mm -hmm. yeah very nice very user-friendly we're not getting paid by them but you know quality product deserves a shout out so it's actually a plot of mass loss versus time for the late stages of a massive star so that first bump you heard was the red supergiant with the stronger mass loss and then it goes down a bit and then into the wolf ray phase at the very end of that really strong peak that you heard which you thought was the satellite launches Mm. Uh oh, interesting cool that's that's really neat i would love to see a visual component of it but i guess the whole point of sonification is not to need that <laughs> <laughs> no awesome 
That's fun. And thank you for demonstrating how easy it is to use two-tone for our audience. We've tried to convince them many times that they too can sonify. And you're now a living example of how easy it is. Give it a go. Two-tone.io. Nice. That's so cool. That's a great space sound. Nice and original. Thanks for that, Cormac. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm feeling better about it now. So I picked Oregon because kind of Halloween. That's this when this episode's going to come out, and you know, Hubble's Hydra monsters scary. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking about scary and monsters, and a very you know, not sure how things will be going. Now we're going to hear from Kirsten about how even the Hubble Space Telescope isn't safe from the clutches of these pesky mega constellations. Yeah. So the astrobite that I'm going to be talking about today is called Moving Telescopes to Orbit Does Not Outrun Satellite Constellations. And this was written by Lindsay DeMarchi. Oh, wow. We have another episode with two astrobites from the same author. <laughs> Go, Lindsay. Yeah. So this astrobite is going to be talking about basically all of these tricky mega constellations that we, you know, have been talking about this whole episode and trying to figure out if we could potentially remove some of the contamination from these satellites and how much of that we can expect. So pretty similar, but specifically looking at Hubble. So as we talked about before, these satellite constellations are on low Earth orbits. So that means that they're really close to Earth and also pretty close to where our space telescopes orbit. One way that we want to be able to address these mega constellations and removing these streaks out of them is by using telescopes with basically long baselines of what the sky looked like before these mega constellations to potentially remove the mega constellations out because we have basically this long baseline of observations of the sky. And so what other telescope to use than Hubble Space Telescope or HST? It's basically like the OG space telescope. It launched back in 1990 and has been surveying the sky for over 30 years. So that's like 34 years of data. Although when I think of space telescopes, it's like the OG telescope. Funny enough, it actually isn't the first space telescope, which I find bananas because when you look at all of these like timelines of when space telescopes launch, they always have like ground observations and then HST and then everything else after that. But back in 1968, the first successful and operational space telescope was the Orbiting Astronomical Observatory, or OAO-2, and it ran until 1973. And it's a cute little bug-looking like telescope thing but it gets absolutely no love even the website on nasa for mm -hmm. this actual telescope looks like it hasn't been updated since the 90s so yeah it has no love so i just want to shout that telescope out it's a little suspicious oao2 you know what happened to oao1 <laughs> oh you don't want to know it almost certainly blew up <laughs> that's what i was thinking 
I didn't look that up, but I that was my immediate thought. I was like, oh, must have just not ended up getting to space at all. <laughs> or it made to space and didn't work. These are the possibilities. Now yeah. it used to fail a lot. Yep. Uh, Will gets the bingo. It made it to orbit and then it was out of control. So oh, the solar good. panels couldn't be deployed. And yeah, <laughs> it all went sideways. So, Kirsten, why are you bringing up this weird old space telescope? Oh, that was the fun fact. Sorry, ah, tangent. Okay, okay. So just, just for <laughs> Just for fun, because I didn't know. But anyway, back to Hubble. So because Hubble launched in 1990, we've got basically just a plethora of archival images that we can go through to compare to observations today. And so... With this archival data, we're able to figure out what percentage of the images have been streaked now from these satellites. And so these streaks are not all made the same. So depending on where these satellites are orbiting above HST, you can have longer streaks or shorter streaks or thicker you know, or skinnier. Mm -hmm. So basically, if it's closer to Hubble, you'll have these thicker, really long streaks because it takes a lot longer for the satellite to pass in front of Hubble. Whereas if it's further away in a higher orbit than Hubble, then you may see these skinny streaks that are pretty short, but you'll see them more often. Mm. And so this is one of the things that makes removing the streaks out of these images kind of difficult. And so the authors really wanted to use machine learning to try and address this kind of complicated question of, can we try and remove these streaks and basically create a machine learning algorithm to do that? Yeah, so why why did they use machine learning? There's got to be a simple, <laughs> more direct approach. It seems like total overkill. <laughs> Oh, throwing the question back in my face. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this was one of the things that I was thinking about, too, clearly, <laughs> as I was looking through this. And I went down the rabbit hole of looking at the paper as well. And from the sounds of it, because the streaks can be so different in terms of where the satellites are located in their orbit which satellites are coming through, mm -hmm. the width and whatnot of them. You can use a signal match filter. However, you'll likely need something a little bit more complex to start to remove the images. But I'm not fully convinced, though, until I see something saying that a signal match filter doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. However, you want to do a machine learning project? All right, do a machine learning project. Exactly. So, but yeah, that's kind of the argument here. So the authors basically use two different machine learning algorithms or different methods to identify the satellite streaks in two different types of Hubble images. So the first are individual exposures, which are around 11 minutes, and composite or stacked images, which are around 35-minute exposures. Mm -hmm. And these are all available basically through the archive. And they're looking at data from 2002 to 2021. And so the first machine learning algorithm that they use already exists. So it's called Drizzlepack. 
And historically, it's been used to reject cosmic rays from images. Ah, so there's some precedent for annoying little streaks. Yeah, exactly. And so this model is a binary classifier, which means it just simply accepts or rejects images based on whatever you're defining as the criteria. So they have a second machine learning algorithm, which is oddly enough from Google. So it's Google Auto Machine Learning Vision, and it's a multi-object detection algorithm. And so they tested that on the composite images, so the stacked images. And this method is a bit more complex than the binary classifier because it uses deep learning that's built from a neural network. And a neural network differs from a binary classification, this yes and no classification, because you can include weights and biases in your algorithm. Mm. So what they found using DrizzlePack, looking at the single or individual exposures, was that DrizzlePack was actually pretty good at identifying satellite streaks in the archival data. And out of the around 115,000 HST images that they were looking at, it found 3,100 around there of satellite trails within these images. And it only classified 205 cases incorrectly. And so this is looking pretty promising, at least for the individual exposures. However, the tricky thing about DrizzlePack is while it was really good at identifying the satellite trails, it wasn't really that great at removing the artifacts because they're significantly larger than cosmic rays. Mm. And so kind of transitioning over to what they found with the Google auto machine learning vision, they found that that one did pretty well too. And so from the 150,000 composite images that they were looking at, they detected around 3,200 satellite trails with 282 cases incorrectly identified. So it seems like DrizzlePack and the Google Auto Machine Learning, they perform pretty equally in terms of at least identifying the satellite streaks. But the Google version is a bit better at actually removing them from the composite images as opposed to DrizzlePack. So what this means for basically, you know, getting more of these mega constellations as we go. So when they were writing this paper, at the time, there were only 1,500 Starlink satellites and around 321 web satellites in orbit. And once again, just to remind you guys, we're expecting this to increase from anywhere between 60 to 100,000 mm -hmm. satellites by the 2030. So that's like, that's only really like six years away. That's not that far. Yeah. And so basically what this means in terms of contamination for HST data specifically is that we're going to have 
a significantly larger fraction up to basically a couple of orders of magnitude of images that are going to be affected by these streaks. And so even though these methods work pretty well right now to try and identify these satellite streaks and potentially remove them, as you can imagine, once you start bumping up that order of magnitude to like, you know, instead of 3,000 streaks, bumping that up to like, I don't know, like 30 or something thousand streaks or something on that order, that number starts to explode on the things that aren't correctly identified and it makes it a bit more difficult to actually pull those out. So, not to sound all doom and gloom, mm. it's not all doom and gloom, but this study basically is kind of saying, hey, we can remove this, but we just need to start kind of thinking about this and start developing better algorithms to actually be able to pull some of these streaks out. So, you know, hopefully that we can get this percentage down significantly. So maybe the authors are basically saying the hope is that, you know, maybe we can develop better machine learning algorithms to where we remain, you know, only like a few percent of these streaks remain in our actual data. And they seem to be pretty hopeful. So yeah, that was, that was kind of this astro bite in a nutshell. And it, it seemed pretty cool. Okay, I like ending on the hopeful note. <laughs> or you can also do what uh, they've done recently with JWST and just put it at a Lagrange point. Yeah, go way further. This is true. This is true. Yeah. But that, I wonder how much more expensive it is to put it at a Lagrange point. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> Thank you, Kirsten, for that wonderful astrobite. And now, if I recall correctly, it's time for our one-sentence summaries. So, Will, if you want to take us away. Sure. One mitigation strategy for contamination is to use machine learning to remove the contaminated sunlight in the spectrum you're trying to take with your observatory. But it's still tricky, and it might require the cooperation of the satellite companies to be successful. Kirsten, what about you? Although Hubble is battling a hydra, it's looking pretty hopeful that machine learning algorithms can help remove some of the many heads, i.e. satellites. <laughs> Very nice. Maybe if somebody comes up with a code that can do all of these things perfectly, they could call it uh, Hercules, since, you know, he was Ooh. the one who slayed the Hydra. Oh, I love That's that. That's great. You just got to come up with a ridiculous backronym, too. High <laughs> efficiency... Removal, contamination, ultra low. <laughs> These are just words that satellites. don't actually mean anything together. Well, I like <laughs> I like some of the new like I feel like people have been moving away from the acronyms and now they just call it whatever they want to call it and then do parentheses mm -hmm. a blah blah blah. <laughs> I I agree with you. I just like it's just called Hercules. It doesn't have to have a whole you know, acronym attached. <laughs> All right. So now that we've had the one sentence summary, we can 
have a seamless introduction to the discussion points. So, are we worried about mega constellations? I mean, I'm a theorist, so I'm not too worried about them. But uh, how how do we feel about them in general? I okay. So, as someone that uses space telescope data more often than not originally i'm not going to lie to you i was like oh that sucks for those ground-based observers man Mm. (laughs) but it seems i'm I'm joking i'm joking but it it actually it seems like previously something that i would say we should be really concerned about because although the stuff that i do uses predominantly data from tests whenever I detect any sort of planet candidates, we do have to use ground-based observing to confirm these candidates. And I'm sure that that goes, and that's pretty similar for a lot of different fields in astronomy where you, you have a combination of space telescopes as well as ground observing that needs to happen. However, I think that it seems to be something that's on people's minds and they're trying to figure out how to address this. So personally, I'm like, you know, if they want to use a machine learning algorithm instead of a signal match filter, at least they're thinking about it. Mm. That's where I'm at. (laughs) What about you all? Yeah, it seems like the field ranges from like, uh, it's a small issue and we'll deal with it to like, this is the end of astronomy and there's nothing we can do. And we need to panic and light ourselves on fire and throw a fit now so that everyone sees it too. There's a, I, I don't like extreme reactions to things. I think the way forward is almost always the middle path. And I think we have to be concerned about this, but also take reasonable measured steps as, as much as we can. But yeah, I, I'm I'm worried about it. I'm worried about a lot of things. I'm an anxious person. So, you know, it, it's it's also something that I think can be resolved. I think astronomers can do a lot of work toward improving this. And I think a little bit of cooperation from the satellite companies would go a long way. And I think they're capable of doing a little bit of cooperation. There has been some of that demonstrated. SpaceX has changed the uh, paint they use to coat their satellites to make them less reflective. And it, it matters. It's a difference. It's not going to solve the problem, but it's, you know, it's demonstrating some improvement. But I think there are a lot of challenges facing astronomy. And this is just one of them. I think the satellite company should use that really like the deepest matte black. Yes. Have you heard of that? Paint? Oh, black. Yeah, That's yeah. like completely not reflective at all. They should collaborate. Yeah. I wonder how hot that <laughs> stuff gets, though, when it's in direct sunlight every day i have no idea probably very hot it probably would not be good for their satellites (laughs) it might turn them into extreme thermal radiators which could be really bad too Hmm. true true well my tinfoil hat theory on this is that they made them really shiny at first so then they could paint them black and go oh look we're helping yeah that's pretty cynical though (laughs) i'm a cynical guy yeah hey you're either right or you're pleasantly surprised that's true that's true (laughs) All right, so do we think that the benefits are worth the harms? So this high-frequency trading, is that worth destroying thousands of years of ground-based astronomy? I'm not biased at all on this, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think the prevailing view among astronomers would be overwhelmingly, no, it's not worth it. But astronomers are not traders. 
nor do we tend to know how that works and how it affects the economy. So I, I don't think that you can get an unbiased sample. I'll take the anti-cynical view for the sake of argument, which is that the economy, the U.S. economy is heavily driven by the stock market and by trading. And so a rising tide lifts all boats. Improvement of high frequency trading has the potential to create enormous wealth for lots of people, including us, if we invest in companies that are doing that. So yeah, I mean, I know it goes more to the top 1% than to other people, but creation of wealth is correlated with just about everything else good in societies. Wealthy countries have better everything. I don't know that that's an acceptable answer. That's the best I could come up with. For me, I think a lot about the access to internet. And I think that that, while the high frequency trading, I'm sure is going to impact the economy significantly more than the internet, I think that if you aren't able to access the internet, because even in parts of the U.S., if you're really far out from, Mm -hmm. you know, and you're in a rural area, you're not going to have internet. I was talking to someone that said basically where their family lives, his parents didn't have internet and and basically because they just couldn't run the cables out Mm -hmm. that far. And so I think that with the way that society is moving, I think that people almost need access to internet in order to really start to develop as, you know, even other countries, not just the U.S. We have a lot of internet and stuff, but thinking about these other countries, what could that provide to them and how could that help them? I'm not really sure, but I can't imagine that it wouldn't be a benefit for them to also gain some wealth and kind of become a little bit more on the world stage and and help their people as well. So I feel like I'm, I'm pretty neutral about it, but I also think that this is almost how everything happens whenever there's a new Mm -hmm. development. Like when the internet came around, it was destroying you know, X, Y, and Z, and people aren't going to be connected as they were before. But if you think about it, now, you know, people are connected more than ever. Yes, we've got other issues as well now, too. But, you know, now if, like, for example, if you've got a loved one that's in another country or whatnot, you can at least, like, FaceTime with them or whatnot. So I kind of think this is probably one of those growing pains where, like, we're going to figure it out. Like, we have to figure it out, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that we will. And I think that overall, it'll probably at least be neutral. (laughs) I think, you know, at worst, I think it's going to be neutral. And at best, you know, it's going to be providing wealth and, you know, increase giving internet to people and then, you know, we as astronomers will be like, okay, whatever, I guess we'll, we'll go out to the Lagrange points now or whatever that may look like. So I'm like pretty mm. neutral about it. <laughs> well, I, I hear what you're saying. And I also, going back to my economic argument, you might actually have the stronger argument there because bringing enormous population of the developing world onto the internet may impact the global economy far more and far more equitably than improving high frequency trading, which is very, you know, um, limited to the top 
percent of earners and you know even the fraction thereof. So I think actually that is a really good argument. And it's also a humanitarian argument. Access to the internet is sort of a humanitarian right in some ways of thinking about it. And I think at the current stage of things with the development, we might be able to mitigate it and know how to handle it. The thing that I think a lot of people are concerned about is the cascade effect of satellites crashing into each other and creating a space debris problem. That has not really, there's no real plan to address that. And one of the reasons that we're careening toward a space debris problem is because the last solar maximum was so weak. At the solar maximum, the increase in proton flux into Earth's atmosphere causes it to puff up. And as that occurs, the low Earth orbits that were previously stable suddenly have atmospheric drag. And the smallest amount of drag will deorbit anything within a few orbits because it just accumulates and rapidly falls down. So actually, solar maximum is really important for clearing out low Earth orbit of debris. And we didn't have a real solar maximum last time. It looks like we're going to have a real one in the coming years. I think 25 or 26 is the maximum. So it looks like we're heading into a bigger one, which could deorbit a lot of these satellites. But still, you know, when you're talking about creating satellites with lifetimes of a few years, no biggie. When it starts to become like, 25 years, 50 years, and then if you launch them higher up, we're talking hundreds to thousands of years. That's where I get really nervous. So I think, and that's not the goal of this episode, our intention is to discuss it in a future episode, but I think activist efforts centered on avoiding a space debris catastrophe is a, a really good and worthwhile venture because it also really affects the companies that are launching these. It will destroy all of their satellites if it, if it gets to the extreme version of this. So they have a financial incentive and you can finally find a way to get them on board. Okay, everybody's got to get on board with this. You have the money and the power to actually do it. And also it'll help astronomy. But it will help you. It'll help you <laughs> so much. You might be right about that. That was a great way to, yeah, see, it'll keep your satellites safe so you can continue to make money. Yay. <laughs> yeah, we're looking out for you. We want to protect space for everybody. I love late-stage capitalism. It could be a global catastrophe, but it could also cost you money. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever we need to do to motivate people, right? Oh, it's a weird time. But hey, you know, you want to live in interesting times, here you go. Yeah, well, look, there's a carrot for every donkey. (laughs) So on that note, that concludes episode 81 of Astro Soundbites, Hubble's Hydra. If you want to read the astrobites we talked about today, check out the links in the show notes. You can find it and all the others at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Wait, before you say the final thing, Kirsten, let's congratulate Cormac on his first episode hosting. Woo woo woo! And also, Cormac, happy birthday because this episode comes out on your birthday. Yes, it does if I get it edited on time. So let's find out together. So thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Thank you, Will, for bringing us that uh, wonderful astrobite. And now I think it's time for my first space sound. And I'm very excited because now... I'm not letting you get away with that. Yes, I I was waiting for you to say something. I was like... It's got to have a silly name. (laughs) 